you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn there. If you would, if you're using the church Bible, you'll find this on page 961. We are in 1 Corinthians 15, and we're looking this morning at verses 12 to 34, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 34. And as usual, I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of scripture open and reading along there with me. And as we do come to God's word, let's again go to him in prayer, asking for his blessing and for the accompanying power of the Spirit this morning. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we again come to your word, and we come, Lord, because we are poor and needy, and yet you think on us. We know that your word is light. As you said, Lord Jesus, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. And yet there are some who do not believe. And so, O God, we pray that as your word is taught and proclaimed, it would be mixed with faith in those that hear it. We pray, Lord, that you would make us attentive and hungry. And as you have said, Lord, that if we would open our mouth, you would fill it with good things. And we pray that you would satisfy the deepest needs and desires of our heart. We pray that you would feed us with the flesh and the blood of the Son of God. We pray that you would make us to see him and hear him and to understand more of our need for him and that you would draw near to us and draw us near to him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put under in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. 
For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, it is certainly an interesting time in American history. It's a time when everyone is acutely aware of what's going on in political spheres and social media is bombarded with statements from the divided country, from individuals in this country who have staked so much in what they desire for this country. And I think it's interesting that when you read all of the statements and you sit and you read the articles and the blog posts and the magazines and you look, listen to the news that plays 24 hours at a time, you realize that questions are being asked. What have we lost? What have we gained? What difference does it make to me? Questions being asked. People on both sides asking questions on that side where so many Christians have found themselves discouraged and seemingly hopeless, I think it's important that we come to a passage like this and we realize that ultimately those questions are not most important in the political sphere and the culture and the temperature in which we find ourselves, but in the spiritual realm. Paul's going to ask those questions this morning in this text. Paul's going to say, essentially, what difference does the resurrection make? What if Christ doesn't, isn't risen? What have we lost? What if Christ is risen? What have we gained? What difference should that make on your life? I think we're going to see those three things here nicely in this text, beginning in verse 12. What, what have we lost? Essentially, Paul asks, what have we lost if Christ is not risen? There were some in Corinth saying, you know what? The body is not the ultimate thing because the spirit is going to break out from the body. And one day the body's just going to rot in the ground. And the spirit is what matters. The spirit inside me, my inner person, is going to go somewhere. And, and presumably they believe they would go to heaven and that the body would just decay. And so what I did with my body didn't matter. And, and so there was some denying a resurrection. We've never seen anyone raised. We've heard people say people have been raised. But now... Paul is saying to them in the very logical, precise way that Paul does his things so well, Paul is saying, what difference does it make? What has been lost if the dead don't rise? And Paul's going to say, what has been lost is everything. Because if the dead don't rise, Paul says, Christ doesn't rise. And notice what he says in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Notice that Paul doesn't start with the, the loss of hope for loved ones. Notice that Paul doesn't say the biggest thing we've lost is that my spouse or my child or some other loved one that we so carefully took care of in their burial and we have this hope for their resurrection, that that's not where Paul goes. Paul goes to the most important person in the universe and he says, if the dead don't rise, Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, you've lost everything. And what Paul is doing is Paul is saying that everything that we need and everything that we are is bound up with everything Christ is and everything Christ has done. And so that Christ, again, takes center stage. He gets the preeminence. He is the brightness of God's glory. He is the express image of his person. He is the one who, by the word of his power, upholds all things. He is the one in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. He is the one who is exalted to a place of glory over principalities and powers and might and dominion and every name that is named. And one day, Paul will tell us, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here he says, if the dead don't rise, then Christ is not risen. And he wants you to make the mental jump then to you personally, what have I lost? And he's going to say, you've lost everything. 
And notice what he says. He says in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's interesting that Paul fixates on the very means by which the death and the resurrection of Jesus are proclaimed. He's told us back in verse 3 that the central message was that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead according to the scriptures, and Paul has told us that it's according to the scriptures. And, he, and it, we saw last week that he went through and he saw how the whole Old Testament is about the Lord Jesus and his death and resurrection. Now Paul is going to say, and the primary means by which you came to faith in Jesus is through the preaching of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that if Christ is not raised, our preaching is in vain. It's empty. It's useless. No, I think about, I think about what I do, what I've been called to do, and I, I do think it's the, one of the highest callings God could ever give to a sinner to proclaim the everlasting gospel. And yet I also realize that nothing I say, nothing I do, nothing that I have in myself, no gift, no knowledge, nothing will do anything for you unless God gives the increase. And that, as Paul says, that ministers are but jars of clay, clay pots, that the excellence of the power may be of God and his message about the Lord Jesus Christ and not of us. And yet, while that's true, while it's true that there's nothing I will say that will automatically change you, and there's nothing I can do to do anything for you to make you better. And in that sense, what I do is really a very foolish thing every Sunday. Nevertheless, Paul says the message that he proclaimed is the message of the power of God unto salvation. And that if Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not behind that preaching, and if there's not a risen Christ working in the souls of the men and women that listen to the preaching about the risen Christ, then everything that we do is useless. And then he says, and your faith is in vain. And your faith is in vain. Notice what Paul will do when he jumps down and talking about what we've lost. Notice what he does there in verse um, in verse 20, 32, he says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You know, this is a song Dave Matthews picked up on. Apparently, um, Humor Locke had taken this verse and it said, There's no afterlife, so let's eat and drink and be merry, mocking the Apostle Paul. And Dave Matthews picks up on this in a song that says, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You know, that's what the world does. If Christ is not risen, you should be doing that. If Christ is not risen... You should leave here and go live for food and drink and entertainment and pleasure and everything else, and you should live life to the hedonistic fool. You shouldn't be seeking to deny yourself. You shouldn't be seeking to deny the desires that burn within us by nature. You should be living them up to the full if Christ is not risen. Someone might say, well, you might get a disease or you might... You might, you might suffer some awful consequences. It doesn't matter. You're going to die. Eat, drink, and be merry. Go. And Paul says, if Christ is not risen, our preaching's in vain. Your faith is in vain. The whole Christian system falls to the ground if Christ is not risen. Sinclair Ferguson very helpfully says, here the Apostle Paul and atheists agree that if Christ is not risen, everything's in vain. The whole thing falls apart. 
You see all these churches trying to take the ethics of Jesus, and as important as the ethics of Jesus are, they will not stand on their own without the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul's going to say, not only is our preaching in vain, not only is your faith in vain, but we're liars. Notice verse 15, he says, and if Christ is not risen, we're found to be misrepresenting God because we've testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise if it's true that the dead don't rise. And so Paul is saying, in essence, everything that we're doing is a lie and a misrepresentation. And it's interesting to me that all the other religions of the world are lies. And the Christian religion is the truth. But Paul is going to say, if Jesus is not risen from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God the Father, then we're the liars and everything else is true. And he's going to say, we're false witnesses of God and we've lied to you about God and we've misrepresented God because we've said that God has raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul is going to tell us then, notice what he says in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Now, I love the way Paul unravels the logical progress because he puts himself in that position of saying, okay, let's grant that the dead don't rise. Let's grant that no one comes out of the grave. And that means Christ doesn't come out of the grave. And if Christ doesn't come out of the grave, then that means what we do is vain, what you believe in vain. And that means that you still have all that sin counted against you for a judgment day. And that you are still enslaved to that sin. And all that sin is still imputed to you. And on judgment day, every intent and thought of the heart is going to be revealed. And as the writer of Hebrews says, every transgression will receive a just reward if Christ is not risen. And what Paul is saying is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ validated that the blood he shed at the cross was indeed sufficient and that the curse he became was indeed sufficient so that you no longer are under that curse. But had he not come out of that tomb and had he just died that cursed death, what that would be saying is that he remained a curse and that we are still under the curse and that God has not atoned for your sin. And that there's no atonement or forgiveness or pardon or grace or mercy. There's no redemption. There's no salvation. Without the resurrection, there is nothing. There's nothing. Notice Paul goes on in verse 18, and he does take up the loved ones who died in Christ, believers who were buried. And he says, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those who profess the name of Jesus, those who trusted in him, those who commune with him, those who knew him, if Christ is not risen, then they've perished. And everything you've done for them was in vain. And all of your fellowship was in vain. And the whole Christian community was in vain. And the whole thing's a hoax, and the whole thing is useless, and you've wasted your life. And notice what Paul says. He says, you've wasted your life if Christ is not risen. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ... We are of all people most to be pitied. I think there's almost an irony here because that's exactly how the world views us. That's exactly how the unbelieving world views true believers as you poor, weak, stupid people. You poor, deceived, stupid people. You've believed in a guy that got murdered, who said he was a redeemer. You believe in some man who said he was God. You believe that he was raised from the dead. You're wasting your life. You have thrown it away. You've thrown away bigger and better things, you know. It's interesting. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I mentioned last week, he was a medical doctor. And in his biography, um, very early in life, 
it talks about the transition of him leaving the medical practice and going into the gospel ministry. And his biographer asked him, or a news reporter asked him, um, how could you give up this lucrative career in medicine to become a preacher? And Lloyd-Jones says, I've given up nothing, I've gained everything. I've given up nothing, I've gained everything. Paul says if Christ is not risen, he gave up everything and, law- and is a fool. And that it's in vain and he's to be pitied for what he did. And so you see what Paul's doing. Paul's saying, you lose everything if there's no resurrection. You lose everything if Christ is not risen from the dead. And now he turns in verse 20 and following and he says, what have you gained? What have you gained through the resurrection of Jesus? Now I love this. Let me just point this out in verse 20 to 28. What Paul does is Paul takes us up on a high mountain and he shows us the panorama view of redemptive history from Adam to the resurrection of Jesus, from the resurrection of Jesus to the consummate glory. He is going to show you all of redemptive history in these eight verses. And he's going to say, let me show you what you gain in Christ. What did the resurrection of Jesus mean? It meant this. It meant that Christ is raised from the dead, that he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, that he represented his people, that his death and resurrection were representative, that when he came out of the grave, he came out with us and for us, that he left our sins in that tomb. Let me read to you a quote I found. I love this by Gerhardus Voss. He says, when Christ rose, he left behind him in the depths of the grave every one of our sins. There they remain buried from the sight of God so completely that even in the day of judgment, they will not be able to rise up against us anymore. That's what Christ has accomplished in his resurrection. He has left all of our sins in the empty tomb. When he came out, he came out victorious. He came out to be the first fruits. And so his resurrection guarantees your resurrection. His life guarantees your life. The hymn writer says, Jesus lives and so shall I. Death, thy sting is gone forever. Jesus lives and death is now, but my entrance into glory. Jesus is the first fruits. He is the firstborn from the dead, never to die again. He enters into a new world. He brings a new creation through his resurrection. Jesus came out of that tomb and he ushered in the new age, the age of the spirit, the age of power and mercy and grace and redemption, and a cosmic transformation of everything. And Paul's going to say, and all of that is because of Adam's sin. All of it was necessary because Adam forfeited everything by his sin. And Paul's going to say in verse 21, as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. Think about that. By a man came death, by a man came the resurrection from the dead. It took a man. It didn't just take God. It took God. He's the God man, but he became man. He became the second Adam. He became the, the second representative of a new humanity so that whoever is united to Jesus is part of the new creation, has been risen with him, is seated in glory with him, is being represented by him, whose life is hidden with him. And it's like the old Puritan said, it's as if there are two men on earth Two giants, and everybody is hung around the belt of one of them. And on Judgment Day, you will either be judged on the basis of Adam and his representation to you, or you will be judged on the basis of Jesus Christ and his representation of you. And Paul's going to say, listen, Adam brought death. Death is the worst thing. Death. Death. Adam will actually, uh, Paul will actually call death the last enemy. 
as if it is the last great obstacle because for the Apostle Paul, death means judgment. Death, death is entrance into judgment. When people die, and it's, it's miraculous how little we hear people say, well, they went to a worse place because the destiny of the human race is to go to a worse place. Death means judgment. Death means eternal torments. Death means you give an account for all your sins, but Jesus Christ has conquered death. And in his resurrection, the complete opposite happens. Like the hymn writer says, death is now my entrance into glory. And so the great martyrs in Scotland, the covenanters, who were burned at the stake for the same faith that we proclaim, all those Christians that were burned at the stake by other professing religious people for the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ could stare death in the face and they could say goodbye, earth, goodbye, loved ones, goodbye, welcome, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They understood that death was their entrance into glory because Jesus' resurrection burst open the gates of glory for all his people to come in. And he went through for us. And notice that Paul continues this idea of Adam. And he continues this idea of what Adam brought into this world in verse 22. He says, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. And there he's saying all who are in Christ, all who have trusted in him. There is a certainty that if you are in Jesus, you are going to glory. You are even now spiritually alive. If you're not in Christ, you're not. You're dead spiritually right here. You are Dead in sins if you're not in Christ. Dead. You can't do anything good in your heart to please God because you're dead spiritually. But if you're in Christ, everyone in Christ is alive because Christ is alive. You see, Christ's physical resurrection, in that victory, he ensured your spiritual resurrection first that will then culminate in your physical resurrection on the last day. And Christ defeated the enemy. Christ defeated death. Christ reigns. Notice verse 25. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Satan, sin, death, the world, all of those things that oppose the truth of God. Christ rules and reigns now because of his resurrection. He conquered the evil one. I forget who said this, but he went in and he took the venom out of the serpent's mouth by undergoing death himself. And when he rose up, he rose up and there was no more sting. He took the sting out of death. He ripped out the venom. He entered into death for you so that there's no more sting for you on that day when God calls you to breathe your last breath. No, it's marvelous to me. I marvel over it when I see how wicked and wickedly the world speaks about Jesus Christ. As we heard this morning, using the very breath that he gives them without a thought that one day they too are going to die and they are going to stand before him and they are going to have to give an account for every single thing they did and they will not believe in him and they know they're going to die and they admit they're going to die. There's not one person I've ever met who thinks they're not going to die. They know they're going to die. And Paul says death is the last enemy but Christ has tasted death for everyone. I want to read to you One of my favorite hymns. O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O wisest love that flesh and blood that did in Adam fail should strive afresh against the foes, should strive and should prevail. Jesus Christ has gone forth as a warrior and a champion for us. 
You don't have to fight that battle. You can't fight that battle. You cannot fight death and win. You cannot fight the judgment of God and win. You cannot fight the evil one and win. But Christ, as the second Adam, has done all of that. And the fact that we know he's one is because he stepped out of that tomb on the third day. He stepped out. He's alive. He's risen. He showed himself to his disciples. He ate fish. He said, Thomas, see my hands and my side. Touch me. See that it's me. See that I'm here. Be believing, not unbelieving. Christ has stepped out victorious. And so Paul is then going to tell us that from Adam to the resurrection of the second Adam and from the resurrection of the second Adam till the end of time, there is a glorious plan of consummation. And notice what he says. He says, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he, that is God the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected under him, then the Son will himself be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, and God will be all in all. What does that even mean? What does that mean? Commentators are divided. I think very basically what it means is that on the last day, Jesus is going to take all those that he's redeemed, all those for whom he died, all those who trusted in him, and he's going to present them to his father. And he's going to say, my father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. I have done everything necessary for redemption. I have put all your enemies and my enemies under your feet. And God is going to rejoice in his son. And the family of heaven and earth will be fulfilled and complete. And the work of the Savior will be seen in all of his full array. And God will be all in all. And brothers and sisters, there's only going to be one political party on that day. There's only going to be one king, and that's God. There's not going to be any more political infighting. There's not going to be any more sin. Notice, there's not going to be any more disorder. Notice that it says that Christ is going to put everything into order in that day. He's going to put everything into order. I love the way Sinclair Ferguson says this. What a mess we've made of the world. How disordered it is. It's a disordered cosmos. The nations are disordered. We ourselves are disordered. There's so much disorder in our society, so much disorder in family life, so much disorder in relationships, so much disorder in the human heart, so much disorder in our own hearts. When Christ comes, he's going to put everything back into order. And when he's put everything back into order, he's going to come with that reordered cosmos and with our reordered lives. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that Christ, in his resurrection, is going to reorganize everything that's disorganized. And that reordered humanity is going to be presented to the Father. And God is going to be all in all. And then notice what Paul does here in verse 29 through 34. He essentially says, what difference should that make to you? What difference should the resurrection make to you? I mean, is it just some nice thing to talk about? Is it nice thing to think about? Should it really have an impact on your life? Paul's going to say a number of things. First, he's going to put out what is probably the most debated verse in the Bible. What do they mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? I'll tell you what I think that means. I think Paul's been arguing that if the dead don't rise, then Christ is not risen because Christ is part of the dead, and we are baptized in the name of one that we're saying is dead if Christ is not risen. I think that's the simplest explanation of what Paul's saying. I don't think we're to baptize dead people, and I don't think the Corinthians were baptizing dead people. I think that Paul is continuing that argument. Our baptism is in vain because if the dead don't rise, Christ is not risen because he's part of the dead. That's been Paul's whole argument. Now he says, 
Why am I in danger every hour? Notice Paul's saying, what difference does it make? Here's what difference it makes. If you believe that, you, like the Apostle Paul, should be able to say, I die daily. I had a good friend when I was a very young Christian. We used to pray for each other often. And I said to him one day, I said, I said, Stephen, how can I pray for you? And he said, pray that I would die every day. Pray that I would die to myself every day. Because Paul said, if you believe in the resurrection, you will die daily. Isn't it amazing to you when you look at the Apostle Paul and you trace out his life and his ministry, how selfless the Apostle Paul is? Not selfless in social activism, not selfless in starting programs and social things that make the government better, selfless in seeking the glory of God and proclaiming the gospel, selfless in putting himself out even in bodily danger. And Paul will mention, he says here, if if Christ is not risen, why did I wrestle with beasts in Ephesus? There were demons, there were demonic powers, there was a crazy slave girl, there was a silversmith who hated them, there were mobs, there were groups coming to lynch and to stone the Apostle Paul, and Paul's saying, Christ is risen, and that's how I could die daily. That's how you do it. That's the key. The key to dying daily is to believe in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I think it's almost like breathing. You never get a sense from the Apostle Paul that he's whipping himself into daily death, flogging himself. Ah, oh, I got to do better. Ah, oh, I got to try harder. It's almost like breathing for him. He knew that Christ was risen. He knew he had been forgiven. He knew what he had in Jesus. And so he died daily. And he said, that's, that's what difference it makes. Notice what he says in verse 34 to us. Wake from your drunken stupor, as is right. Do not go on sinning. For some have the knowledge of God. Some do not have the knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Many, many years ago now, there was unrepentant sin in my life. And I heard a man from India preach on this passage. And it was a really amazing sermon. It was better than all the sermons I had been hearing. And I went up afterwards and I said, that was a really great sermon. And he said, then stop sinning. That was the main point of his sermon. If you believe Christ is risen, stop sinning. That's what Paul says. By God's grace, I did stop sinning. That particular sin. The rest of our life is stop sinning. The rest of our life is believe that Jesus is risen, stop sinning. Don't say that's a great sermon. Don't say that's a great teaching. Don't say I like to listen to this person preach. Stop sinning. That's what difference the resurrection ought to make in our life. If Christ is raised, the power of sin's broken. You're not slaves to sin. Why continue in sin? If Christ has paid for that, broken the power, taken away the guilt, taken away the condemnation, taken away the corruption, made you new creatures, you see the logical progress is that what difference What difference does the resurrection make? It makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in your life and my life. Now the question is, do you merely confess these things when you say things like the Apostles' Creed? Do you merely say, I believe in the resurrection, or do you believe in the risen Christ? It's interesting, Mary and Martha, when Jesus goes to raise Lazarus from the tomb, 
They say, I know that my brother will live again on the last day, and I know you can raise him up. And Jesus essentially says to them, that's a mere confession that you believe in a resurrection, but do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Jesus says to both Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Are you believing in the risen Lord Jesus? I'm not asking if you believe in the possibility of a resurrection. I'm not asking if you confess a resurrection. Do you believe in Jesus who is the resurrection and the life? You know, we need so many things. I think what Ferguson says about a disordered life, a disordered world, a disordered nation, a disordered heart. We need so many things, and you know what? We get everything we need in the crucified and risen Jesus. We get everything. If you're in Christ, you are a new creature. You have been raised from spiritual death, and you are heading to glory. And so we say, we say, Jesus lives and so shall I. Death, thy sting is gone forever. He who deigned for me to die lives the bands of death to sever. He shall raise me from the dust. Jesus is my hope and trust. Let's go to him and pray now. Father, we so desperately need to have the eyes of our heart fixed upon your son whom you raised from the dead. We thank you that everything that we have and everything that we do according to your word, is not in vain because he lives. We pray, our God, that you would give us a strong confidence that we would know a deeper communion and fellowship with the risen Lord Jesus and that you would make us to hope in our own resurrection from the dead on the last day. Father, we pray that we would see spiritual resurrections all around us through the resurrected Christ. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would call sinners from death to life that we would see the power of the resurrection manifest in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Give us this confidence together as your people, O God. We pray even now as we come to the table that the resurrection would be powerfully at work, that we would be growing in our knowledge of the risen Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.